Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning, as we turn to this part of your word, that you might teach us, where necessary you might rebuke us, you might correct us, and you might train us in righteousness, that we might be equipped for every good work. And this we ask of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the years, uh, Moore College has created some strange and amusing videos as we've endeavoured to explain what is happening in this place uh, to the world at large and to the churches that we serve. I think uh, the strangest to my mind had me sitting alone in the Cash Chapel reading the centenary history of Moore College. In the first cut, it began with the stained glass windows in focus it then panned down to me sitting alone in the chapel, flicking over the pages, as if that's what I do with my spare moments, you know. Sneak into the chapel to covertly read a book about the college, alone, you know. I've got a door on my study, you know. But almost as amusing was one that was produced soon after this building was opened. Uh, the opening pictures were taken by a drone, circling the building. You know, taking in this new addition to the college from one angle after another, one perspective after another, and it gradually came in to draw near to one solitary, impressive, majestic figure standing on the roof. And there, in all his splendour and glory, was Dan Wu. <laughs> The pictures were terrific, and seeing the building from different angles really did have the intended effect. Uh, we have much for which to thank our God in the provision of this building. Look at it this way, and then that way, and then in yet another way, and you get an almost overwhelming sense of the whole. This morning we continue our journey through the book of Revelation, and the middle section of the book is a little like that. Not so much a sequential, chronological account of events to come as the same events viewed from different angles. One cycle after another, then another, and in the end you get this extraordinary sense of the whole and what is really going on in the world. And there is one majestic, splendid figure who stands alone at the centre of it all. And no, it's not Dan. Over the centuries, Christians have almost tied themselves up in knots, trying to identify each of the events described in these middle chapters of the book of Revelation. They've treated the book in the way some others treat the quatrains of Nostradamus, a mysterious, coded account of world history. And if you crack the code, it correlates brilliantly with the events we've seen played out in human history. Clever people have found Constantine and Napoleon and Adolf Hitler and others in these pages. Others have found the world wars, the oil crisis of the late 20th century, the GFC, the rise and fall of communism, and even the rise of Donald Trump. But often these observations are a little like those pictures in which, if you look closely, squint one eye, stand on your head and look in a mirror, then you begin to see something that you would never have seen in the first place. 
They've understood that this is a special kind of literature and that there are many symbols. Numbers have special significance, so do colours. But what they find is so varied and sometimes contradictory that you can't help but think they've missed something. I think there are two things to, in particular to remember as you read this book that will keep you from falling into that trap. And the first is simply remembering to whom this was first written and why. It's very clear from the first few chapters that this is a book written to the churches. It's written to the congregations of believers in the Lord Jesus scattered across the Eastern Mediterranean 50 or 60 years after Jesus' earthly ministry. It's written to people who are under pressure. They'd heard what had happened to John. He was on the Isle of Patmos, this desolate little rock in the, in the middle of the sea, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. But he was also their brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perfect endurance that are in Jesus. They had that in common. This book was not written to satisfy idle curiosity on the part of those in relatively comfortable circumstances. Nor was it written as an aggressive manifesto and challenge to those who were harassing Christians then or now. It was written to the churches, to embattled Christians, to those not so much interested in the future as frightened there was no future. The forces arraigned against them seemed to be on the winning side, but they needed to know that in Jesus there is a kingdom and in Jesus they can and must patiently endure. You remember the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. How many times did the risen Jesus urge them to keep going, to persevere, to hold on? If you read the whole book in one sitting, there's something that stands out, or at least it stood out to me. One sentence that occurs twice in the middle of the book, very deliberately, I think. Both occurrences are outside the chapters we're looking at this morning, but they are powerful reminders of why the entire thing is written. Chapter 13, verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And chapter 14, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Now, we'll look at those sentences in their context when we come to them, but isn't it remarkable that that sentiment should be repeated? You need to hear these words I've written, John is saying to his first readers, and God is saying to us. You need to hear these words as an encouragement to persevere, to endure, to keep going. Remember that. Remember that's what they're about. And you're less likely to be caught up in code-breaking. Whatever is happening around us, whatever new tyrant is imposing their will, whatever legislative program is being put in place to curtail the proclamation of the gospel, whatever perfect storm of seemingly natural disasters and personal tragedies threaten to derail us, there is a reason to persevere, to hold fast to what you've been given and to pray with confidence and with joy. The second thing you need to remember as you read through this middle section of the book is that everything flows out of the vision of heaven 
that John saw in verses 4 and 5, the vision we considered last time. At the very centre of reality, of all reality, over all of time, there is a throne. And the one unshakably seated upon it is holy and glorious and almighty. And before that throne is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who is none other than the lamb who was slain. But he's conquered. Remember those wonderful words in the first vision in chapter 1. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Friends, because this is true, because the throne at the centre of all reality is occupied by such a one, and because the lion lamb has triumphed and he has the keys, this is what is really happening in human history. Because this is true, there must be judgment. And because this is true, there will be salvation in the midst of that judgment. The cycles of seven seals to be broken, seven trumpets to be blown, seven signs to be warned by, seven bowls to be poured out, give us different perspectives on the whole of human history. But these perspectives arise from two immovable, unshakable truths at the heart of the universe. God is on the throne and Jesus has triumphed. So you don't have to be afraid. And you don't have to lose heart. And you can keep going and look forward. Even in a world under judgment, there is hope. Because God is on the throne and Jesus has triumphed. So let's look at the judgment first and then the hope. We know from chapter 5 that the scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals is a very big deal. Only the lion lamb is able to break the seals and execute the purposes of God. The new song of the four living creatures and the 24 elders begins, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. The death and resurrection of the Lamb and the redemption accomplished there is the reason why he and he alone is able to break the seals. So you see, judgment is appropriate, true and right when it comes from his hand. And salvation is appropriate, just, effective and final when it comes from his hand. And as the songs cascade and reach their crescendo at the end of chapter 5, and once again the living creatures cry, Amen, and the elders fall down and worship, everyone awaits the breaking of the seals. The stage is set, the pieces are in place, and what all heaven has been waiting for unfolds in the matter of a few verses. What we see is the first four seals are broken in chapter 6 is on one level not unusual. In a sense, these are ordinary events repeated again and again in the history of the world since Jesus ascended to heaven. Conquest, with all its attendant destruction, as the white horse rides out, its rider wears a crown. War and strife between the nations as the red horse rides out, its rider bears a sword. Famine and hunger as the black rider rides out, its rider holds a set of scales. And death and decay as the grey green horse rides out, 
Its writer's name is Death, and he is followed closely by Hades, the place of the dead. The first readers of this book knew the experience of each of these things, and each of them is the experience of many in our world today. This is a picture of our ordinary world. A lust for conquest ends in war. War so often decimates the landscape and brings about famine. Famine leads to sickness, plague and death. You could have seen it in the first century, in the time of Nero or Titus or Domitian. You could have seen it in the Middle Ages. You could have seen it in the devastating wars of the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th centuries in innumerable places around the world. You see it today in the pictures of devastation from Ukraine. Human catastrophes at the hands of other humans. Yet the most terrifying thing about this picture, to my mind, is not the nature nor even the scale of the disaster that falls and keeps on falling again and again, dreadful though those things are, but the fact that each of them is called out. They've been prepared. Each of the horses and their riders appear because one of the four living creatures cries out, come. For in the end, these ordinary events, these human catastrophes, are the indications of a world under judgment, the judgment of the one seated on the throne. God is ultimately supremely in control. The judgments on this world happen at his command and they will only cease at his command. You see, because our God is on the throne and be, because Jesus has triumphed, the world cannot escape judgment. The human race has corrupted itself and that corruption plays itself out in all these ways again and again through the course of human history. Human sin is harmful, and we do this harm to one another. But the ongoing impact of human sin is itself, in the end, the judgment of God. The unrepentant defiance of God that so rapidly and repeatedly turns its violence against God's redeemed people will not and does not go unanswered. It cannot go unanswered. If you're angry about it, God's far more angry about it. Skip ahead for a moment to the breaking of the sixth seal and the terrifying apocalyptic events which bring this judgment to a climax. Earthquake, darkness, the collapse of the sky itself. An embattled church needs to hear that what looks like endless opposition compounded by an ongoing cycle of human catastrophes and consequent disaster, will not evade God's judgment, but is caught up in that judgment now. See what's happening in the world and don't be terrified. Know that these are the ordinary signs of a world under God's judgment and there are more spectacular signs to come and you do not need to be afraid. You can keep going. You can endure and persevere. And what makes this all the more possible is the salvation that is certain and real in the midst of this judgment. So when the fifth seal is broken, there is no cry of come and no other horse riding out to dispense judgment. Our attention is drawn from the world to the victims of the world's hostility and destruction 
to those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And the overwhelming impression that we are given is that they are safe. They are under the altar. They are under the Lamb's protection. They are not lost and will never be lost. Those torn to pieces in the Colosseum and a myriad of other arenas throughout the Roman Empire, the Reformation martyrs burnt alive outside the north gate of Oxford, Jim Elliot killed in the jungles of Ecuador, that line of 21 Coptic Christian men butchered by ISIS on a beach in Libya in 2015. None of them lost, all of them safe. The terrifying reality of what has happened to them and around them is not glossed over in any sense, but they know it will be answered. They know there is a final judgment to come and they just ask when, how long? And they are each given a white robe, the robe of a conqueror, and they're told to rest, to wait just a little longer until their number is complete, for none of this is random. God knows every single one of them. He knows the full number of them and when it will be complete. In the midst of a world corrupted and convulsing under the judgment it brings upon itself, God works for the salvation of those who are his, every single one of them. And you see it again when the sixth seal is broken. After that description of the great apocalyptic events that signaled the final judgment, we hear an angel cry out with a loud voice, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, chapter 7, verse 3, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. The judgment is real. The wrath of the lamb is terrifying, but it will not touch the servants of our God. Just as in the Exodus, the, the mark on the, on the lintel separated and protected the children of Israel when judgment fell on Egypt. So the seal the angels will place on the foreheads of those servants of our God will mark them out as those upon whom the judgment will not fall. Judgment played out in the ordinary events of world history and spectacularly with cosmic apocalyptic signs at the end. And yet not a single one of those who belong to God will be lost the full number of the people of God. That's, that's why the number 144,000 is used. I don't think we're meant to take it as a literal number. In fact, the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes quickly merges into a great multitude that no one could number. And that great multitude of the redeemed, like the living creatures, the elders and the angels before them, sing of how brilliant this is. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And those who are redeemed, who come out of the great tribulation, and I take it he means life in the world opposed to Christ and all who are his. In the world you will have tribulation, Jesus told his disciples just before he was handed over. The redeemed have victorious white robes because they have been washed clean in his shed blood. It must be like this. A real terrifying judgment and victorious salvation in the midst of it because God is on the throne and Jesus has triumphed. The holy, glorious, almighty God is on the throne. 
and Jesus, the Lion of Judah and Lamb of God, has triumphed. That's the thing to remember. When you face the anger and outrage of the secular media, or you face the criticism and distancing of your friends on social media, when the parliaments and the courts are set against you, or when physical violence is directed towards you, yes, the judgment is real, but so is the salvation from in the midst of it. For a promise has been given. The command from the heavenly throne, given through the living creatures and the angel, and you do not need to be afraid. So keep going. Keep enduring. Keep persevering. But once again, there's one more thing to notice before we close. Before the seventh seal is broken and in the silence we wait for the seven trumpets to be blown. It's, it's something we've seen before, but it's now brought to the centre stage. Back in chapter 5 and verse 8, we were told that when the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, they were carrying not only a harp, but golden bowls full of incense, which we are told are the prayers of the saints. And now in chapter 8 and verse 3, it's a single golden censer. And in verse 4, the smoke of the incense rises with the prayers of all the saints. Critical to all that's going on in these chapters, to the execution of God's judgment and the salvation of those who are his, are the prayers of the saints. The prayers of all the saints. Have you ever stopped to think how significant your prayers are in the purposes of God. These words tell you that. God has not only determined the end, the what of his purposes, he's also determined the means, the how of his purposes. And a very significant part of that how is your prayers. Yes, your prayers. Weak and fragile though they are, hurried on occasion, blurred by our own lingering selfishness and sometimes lacking focus and clarity, your prayers are an essential part of what God is doing in judgment and salvation. That's quite astonishing, isn't it? Someone like me, my, my prayers, part of his plan. So don't despise prayer, will you? Don't leave it as a last-minute add-on to the other important things you do. Don't give up on it as futile, as if it doesn't make a difference God has determined that it will make a difference. Your prayers are crucial. And that too is something that an embattled church needs to hear, isn't it? Well, as we've traced the circuit for the first time, followed the cycle of the seven seals, seeing judgment and salvation worked out alongside each other over the course of human history, you might have noticed two questions have been asked. They're both in chapter 6. We've already noticed the first one, the one asked by the martyrs, safe under the altar of God, protected by the Lamb. How long, O Lord, they ask? How long, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the answer they are given is, there are still others who must join you before the final judgment comes. So hold on, wait. None of this is random and uncertain. He knows the full number, and he will gather them all first. Not one of them will be lost. 
The second question is asked just a few verses later by the kings of the earth, the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful. They cry out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And then they ask their question, and who can stand? And the answer they're given comes in chapter 7. The sealed servants of our God, those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, they are the ones who stand in the end. They are those who've been saved, saved through the judgment that is taking place all through human history, but even more crucially, saved when it all comes to a great climax on the last day, when the face of the one seated on the throne is turned towards those who have opposed him and the wrath of the Lamb is unleashed. On that day, the full number of God's people will be gathered and they will be safe. And there is a future. It's worth waiting for. It's worth enduring for. It's worth praying for. For in that future, on that day, when the white-robed conquerors stand before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This morning, as we gather and share in the symbolic meal, reminding us of Jesus' death for us and for our sin the death that secures our salvation in the midst of judgment. Remember, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Shall we pray? Please, Father, remind us of these words when we are fearful of the world in which we live and we face an uncertain future and Ask ourselves how long, as well as ask that of you. Father, we pray, remind us of the salvation that you have secured and the future that lies before us. And this we ask of you in Jesus' name. Amen.